An actor portraying a pleasant but nerdy-looking fellow in a white shirt and suspenders was sitting at a desk. The room was filled with knickknacks of various styles and eras. A rotating ceiling fan projected dramatic shadows across the scene. On the desk in front of the actor lay a flat, art deco tablet with a screen. As he spoke, the screen came to life. I need to give a lecture on the African rainforest. What's available on this subject? The actor was obviously supposed to be a professor. A small window opened on the tablet, and a smiling, geeky face with a bow tie appeared, eager to please. Just a moment, the electric pixie said. I'll check all major libraries. In a second, a bibliography appeared on the screen. For the next several minutes, the actor engaged this electronic elf in a free-ranging dialogue. The elf displayed a mastery of colloquial English and conversational dynamics. Periodically, the actor would touch the screen to bring up startling color pictures, answer a video phone call, or select from a menu. The drama ended on a light note, with the actor sneaking out when a call from his mother appeared on the screen. That's from the book The Startup by Jerry Kaplan. This is Kaplan's uh, rec recollection of a 1987 meeting he had at Apple. And it was amazing to see that not only is the iPad a product of years and years of development, but that it took so many years. This was 1987. This was 20 years before the first iPhone came about, much less anything that had voice recognition that we now call Siri or Alexa or anything like that. And Kaplan's book, even though I'm only through the first section, is a good example of what Mark Andreessen talks about when he says the future is here, it's just not evenly distributed. And that, that phrase has been kicking around in my mind after he told it to Barry Ritholtz in their podcast. And it's all about finding secrets. It's all about finding things that people are currently doing or people are currently thinking about or people are currently experimenting with and seeing if that's something that's going to come and take over, whether or not that's going to be something that becomes something that, that is really huge. I remember when Pokemon Go started to become a thing last summer that there were certain podcasters and bloggers I follow that were like, whoa, whoa, whoa wait a minute. What about this other augmented reality game we've been playing for years? And, and the company that ended up making Pokemon Go had done an augmented reality game that was uh, just like it, minus the Nintendo characters. And it had been a success within a certain niche group of people. And if we combine these ideas of what Andreessen says and this ex example from Pokemon Go and the idea of things taking a really long time, like the tablet and what would become Newton and then ultimately the iPad and Siri at Apple, we can really start to pay attention in these little nooks and crannies. Technology moves really fast, so it's interesting to pay attention there. But I think this is an idea that will expand to a lot of other areas as well. I'm only 50 pages into Kaplan's book, but so far it's been a really interesting view with a lot of parallels to the current technology and startup scene of today. One. In January 2017, or December 2016, Chris Cole of Artemidas Capital Management wrote a paper titled Star Wars Convexity that I thought was really interesting. This is how it opens. Quote, 
A first order movement is a change in position that is probable, standard, and easily conceived. Higher order movements like second, third, etc. are nonlinear shifts in a position that are rare and not easily conceivable. Success in life and investing is often about sacrificing first order effects, that is the linear, for the power of higher order effects or nonlinear. Name a single long-lasting marriage where sacrifice didn't precede higher order trust and love. Name a single billionaire entrepreneur that didn't sacrifice a safe and linear salary to achieve untold wealth and change the world. Name a single spiritual leader that didn't sacrifice the physical body for spiritual truths. Despite this universal truth, most of us do the exact opposite. Why? End quote. And in the paper... Cole uses the analogy of Star Wars and George Lucas's experience with the studios and the actors at Star Wars and what that ultimately led to. And, and Cole does a really good job of explaining this in simple terms. Convexity, nonlinearity, those are terms that often have a mathematical foundation, but in, in storytelling this way, Cole um, really articulates and makes it clear what those sort of things mean. For example, uh, the, the most well-known, um, most well-cited idea from George Lucas is that, is that he took a low director's salary so that he would have other options for making income from the movies. That manifested itself in merchandising sales, sequels, toy sales, video games, and the home entertainment box office. So because George Lucas sacrificed these these short-term, these linear things for some convexity, for some higher-order rewards, it, it really paid off for him. But but this isn't this isn't easy. Lower-order rewards are 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 simple. They're convenient choices. Factors like recency bias and one-to-one -one thinking make this almost our default choice. It's George Lucas taking a normal salary for Star Wars instead of uh, the the structure that he ultimately came up with. Emotionally, this is a simple choice, whereas taking the long-term perspective, betting on volatility and convexity, is, is harder. We can be more like George Lucas and take the lower upfront salary in exchange for more money sequels or more money at the box office. But this is harder to stomach. Cole writes, quote, It just feels better to leverage first-order effects at the expense of higher-order ones, end quote. It's a hard decision to do emotionally. The people that Cole writes about, besides Yoda and Han Solo, uh, people that were involved with the studio had to choose whether or not to give this option to George Lucas. They had to decide whether or not they wanted the first order effects of a low salary in exchange for the longer ones with uh, higher payoffs, the, the Star Wars franchise. And, and Cole writes that because there was a, a big movie that was a bust, because there was this movie called Dr. Doolittle that had a lot of merchandise rollout but turned out to be a flop at the box office. Because of this, there was a recency bias at the studio where the people there were less willing to take risks. They wanted more sure things. So they wanted the sure thing of George Lucas's lower salary and not a large commitment to merchandising in case things didn't work out. And, and ultimately, things did work out and Star Wars became a behemoth. But the studio, we can also say, made a wise choice, even though they were really, um, really affected by the recency bias. To, to close the paper, this is what uh, Cole writes, quote, 
Randomness is a gift to those who persistently seek out low-rent exposure to change. Next time you go see the new Star Wars movie, buy your kids a Star Wars toy, or see the Star Wars brand. Recognize that the real force is convexity. If you are so focused on avoiding the next Dr. Doolittle, you will fail to see the multiple decade potential of Star Wars. Long volatility is not a hedge, it is a source of alpha, an alternative to fixed income and the new world paradigm. Some investors may nod their head in agreement with these concepts, but very few put action to words. In the future, we will read stories about thoughtful investors that perceived a non-linear world beyond the post-Brenton Woods order and positioned their fiduciaries for great success during the regime change. You should be one of them, but this takes courage, end quote. So just in this last section, Cole articulates that if you think long-term and you choose the upside rather than the immediate linear one-to-one short-term payoffs, there could be a great reward in that, but it's going to take a certain emotional and mental fortitude to stick with that choice, to be George Lucas and take the risk on Star Wars rather than the studio executives. On a podcast this week, one of the guests was talking about how checklists change, and checklists have really been in front of mind lately. We've talked about it on the last two episodes of this podcast, but what this guest was saying is how your checklist adapts, how your checklist evolves over time, and I thought that was really interesting to think of these checklists as something more than a static idea. I was making an outline for a longer blog post or article about checklists, and it really depends on how much of the skill-luck continuum affects a checklist. So we can think of something like surgery or airplane pilots, two groups that are the subject of Atul Gawande's book on checklists, and and we can think of those environments as, as pretty sterile in the case of surgeons and very repeatable in, in the case of pilots. We can look at a company like Southwest Airlines, and and all of their planes are the same, and so those pilots have really an identical checklist. But for other instances, for situations where maybe luck plays a larger role, we can think of checklists as these evolving things. We can think of checklists as something that we update periodically. Another part of checklists that I had overlooked until this week was the idea of the Checklists being a psychological tool, we can use them. We can we can harvest this idea, this joy of crossing things off, and we can use that to our advantage. One instance this comes up is in this book about Dr. Paul Farmer called Mountains Beyond Mountains. It's probably my favorite book of 2016, and definitely one of the best books I've ever read. And in this book, Tracy Kidder, the author, follows Paul Farmer around uh, his different offices in Haiti and then, and then back in Boston and then all over the world because of um, the nature of what Paul Farmer is doing. And, and this is what Tracy Kidder writes about uh, Paul Farmer's productivity system. Quote, on the wall beside his desk, Farmer has taped up three sheets of yellow legal paper. On every line, a task to be completed. And beside each of those, a hand-drawn box in Creole, a boite. I've noticed that if he completes a chore that he forgot to put on the list, he writes down the chore, makes a boat beside it, then puts a check in the box. This seems to give him an inordinate amount of pleasure, and I must admit that I feel some myself. Completely unjustified when he says, we're getting a lot done. End quote. So Paul Farmer, one of the most productive people 
that I've ever read about, someone who's getting so much done in the world, has this really simple system of just writing things down on a yellow legal pad, but then if he does something, he, he writes it down and he checks it, even though he doesn't necessarily have to do that. And I think part of the reason is this joy we get from striking things off, we get from, from crossing things off our to-do list. Another example where this hit home is from the book The Great Beanie Baby Bubble. And if you don't remember Beanie Babies, they were these soft plush toys that were um, a craze in the late 1990s. And, and part of what made it a craze was that collectors and people who were publishers of information would put out these, these lists, almost like a checklist of things or a to-do list. And these are the baby babies you have to collect. This is what you have to do. And, and some people uh, that were profiled in the book really felt this strong pull to getting a full set, to completing their checklist. This is what the book says. Quote, Grenady's contribution to the rise of Beanie Baby Bubble was significant. He was the first retailer to produce a checklist of all the Beanie Babies he knew, current and retired. Grenady had seen the power of checklists to induce collecting. He was hoping to make that happen for Beanie Babies at a lower entry point. And then uh, a little later on in that same book, quote, While Richard Grenady was promoting Beanie Babies in his store and at local collectible shows, two pairs of intelligent, well-educated Chicago women, Becky Phillips and Becky Esteroso, along with a doctor and her sister, were working to assemble complete collections egged on by the checklist they obtained from Grenady. My downfall was a checklist, one early collector told me. Once you have a checklist, you don't look at what you have, you look at what you don't have, end quote. So we've seen over and over again that the checklists are powerful filters for our decision-making. Checklists can be really helpful, but I never considered this psychological angle to it where it feels good to go through a checklist and it feels good to complete a checklist. And so maybe there's something even further to that. It's an idea I'm starting to flesh out more and more. Three. One of the best examples of looking at the base rates and how base rates change comes from a blogger named Tynan, and the blog post was titled Analyzing Risk. And base rates are really helpful because it, it provides the outside view to a situation. Normally, we approach a condition or we approach a situation, and we only consider the inside view. That is the things we know. We believe ourselves to be above average. We think about how things always work out for us. We don't tend to see the the, uh, the, 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 the facts that are hidden from us. We have a survivor's bias. We have rose-colored lenses. We're the entrepreneur who believes that even though all those other startups failed, ours is going to be the one that succeeds. And in this blog post, Tynan talks about how he uses the outside view and how he changes that. And the outside view can be really helpful because it can dissuade us. It can show us what normally happens. This is what he wrote. Quote, when I calculate risk, I look at the statistics before blindly applying them. I ask how relevant they are to me as an individual. In some cases, they're fairly universal. My risk of dying in an airplane crash is the same per mile as anyone else's. The financial risk I accept by investing in a particular stock is the same as well. But some statistics can be very accurate for a population, yet way off for an individual. When I began riding a motorcycle, I looked carefully at what actually caused motorcycle accidents. Alcohol was a factor in 50% of crashes, and since I don't drink, I can eliminate that. I can eat a healthier-than-average diet, so my risk of many diseases is decreased. I'm on my computer all the time, so my risk for carpal tunnel is much higher than for most." End quote. And I loved how, how Tynan took these 
real world personal examples and he looked at what the base rate was he looked at what the outside view was and he started from there this is a key point in the research of michael mobus and is that you should often start with the base rate then create your own perspective of what you think is going to happen and then you have to figure out how much can your own lifting how much can you shoulder the load and how much can you move that away from the base rate so so tynan looked at this and he, he figured well if half of all crashes involve alcohol and i don't drink then that base rate doesn't apply to me in the same way he's taken a situation where the outside view is one thing and you can really move that outside view you can really change it to closer to what your inside view is because you remove this one single factor Another blog post that really stuck out as being very interesting was one that Scott Alexander wrote at Slate Star Codex. And <laughs> the premise to this blog post was this joke or rumor or fancy that he heard is that uh, a group of aliens had landed in Budapest in the late 1800s and they uh, had children with some of the women there. But uh, before these children grew up, the aliens found this planet not to be to their liking, and so the aliens left, but but the children, the children stayed. And, and the joke is, uh, or, or this is a funny story, because all of these brilliant scientists came out of Budapest in the late 18 and early 1900s. And Scott Alexander wonders about this. Is, is it genetic? Is there a cultural thing? Is the education at some particular high school in Budapest, Hungary, outstanding? And and what he what he concluded was this. This is from this is from his article. Quote, I think what's going on is this. Germany and Hungary had about the same Jewish population, and they produced about the same number of genius physicists in the same window. But we think of Germany as a big rich country, and Hungary as a small poor country. And the German Jews were spread over a bunch of different cities whereas the Hungarian Jews were all crammed into Budapest. So when we hear there were X Nobel Prize winning German physicists in the early 1900s, it sounds only mildly impressive. But when we hear there were X Nobel Prize winning physicists from Budapest in the early 1900s, it sounds kind of shocking. But the denominator isn't the number of Germans versus Hungarians. It's the number of German Jews versus Hungarian Jews, which is about the same." End quote. And Scott Alexander's thesis is that there is some genetic quirk, some nuance for Eskenesi Jews that allows them to be really good at mathematics and physics and playing chess. And there's actually a whole series on his blog, Slate Star Codex, uh, about what might be going on, whether there's the educational system or a cultural thing or a religious thing that, that factors into this. But this one passage touches on something we've seen again and again, and that's our projection of stories and our understanding of stories. The results were kind of shocking because we expected something different. We started to tell ourselves these stories about this single town in a small country producing as many physicists and mathematicians and brilliant minds of the early part of the 20th century as an entire country that we already have a high reputation for. In his podcast with Barry Ritholtz, Michael Mobison said this, quote, Once an event occurs, all of us effortlessly and naturally create a narrative to explain that outcome. 
two things kick in. The first is hindsight bias. We start to believe we knew what was going to happen with a greater probability than we actually did. And the second thing that happens is creeping determinism, where you start to believe that what happened is the only thing that could have happened." End quote. We naturally tell stories. We naturally understand things through stories. But stories can sometimes get us into trouble. Anytime we find something that's, that's shocking, a theory that we don't understand, an explanation that hadn't occurred to us, it's probably likely that we were telling ourselves the wrong story or that this new interpretation is an incorrect story. We have to be careful with these stories because while they're really helpful figuring out and explaining the world, they can sometimes trip us up. If there was one theme to this week's podcast, I think the theme is curiosity, this willingness and ability to be curious about things. At Apple, they created what was the iPad with Siri more than 20 years ago, and it took that long for all the technology to catch up. But they were curious and they were willing to try these things. Thinking about convexity in terms of Star Wars is another form of curiosity. We want to dig into these ideas of long-term payouts rather than short-term rewards and think about when we want that to happen, whether it's in our financial investments or in our relationships. Checklists help us to be curious because as Jocko Willink likes to say, discipline equals freedom. If we can create and evolve healthy, helpful checklists for situations we face again and again, we will be disciplined in our decision making and we won't get stuck in a quagmire that can bog us down. Curiosity also helps us move away from the base rate. It helps us figure out when the inside view is more helpful and applicable to our situation than is the outside view. Curiosity also helps People like Scott Alexander write these blog posts about Hungarian physicists and the aliens that may or may not have visited their mothers. Curiosity gets us to wonder, what is really happening here? What is actually going on? Hopefully this podcast episode has left you a little curious too. Thanks for listening.